The American Institute of Indian Studies was founded 60 years ago to further the knowledge of India in the United States by supporting American scholarship on India. The programs of AWS foster the production of and engagement with scholarship on India and promote and advance mutual understanding between the citizens of the United States and of India. AWS seeks to provide access to scholarship about India to a wide and diverse audience. Welcome to the June 2022 episode of the American Institute of Indian Studies special 60th anniversary podcast series. My name is Anandi Silva-Kanuppal, and I'm the Strategic Initiatives and Project Specialist for AAAS. Through this series of conversations, we'll explore and celebrate the oral history of AAAS over the last 60 years, including the founding of the Institute, its impact on scholarship and students, and its future. In this episode of our 60th anniversary series, Sandria Freitag, Associate Teaching Professor in the Department of History at NC State University and leader of the KORC AAAS Faculty Development Seminars, interviews Thomas Metcalf, Emeritus Professor of History and Sarah Kailath Professor of Indian Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and former AWS Senior Fellow and Chair of the Board of Trustees. In their interview, they reminisce about the early days of AWS Research Fellowships, the memorable relationships created through AWS over the years, and the forms AWS programs should take in the future. So first, it seems as though um, what would be really helpful is for um, viewers and listeners to know when and how you became involved with the Institute. Okay, that's a good question. And I'm going to start that by saying a little bit by when I went to, about when I went to India before AIS existed to give a sense of the usefulness of AIS. I went uh, as a Ford Foundation fellow to do dissertation research in 1960-61, which is about three years before the Institute was founded. I mean, Ford was very helpful in the sense that they gave me a nice amount of money, but they were not very helpful when I was in Delhi. Uh, I had no contacts with them. I had no contacts with the U.S. Embassy. I worked in the National Archives in, in Delhi the whole year. I don't think I ever saw another uh, American researcher. So it was a pretty lonely sort of enterprise, but I got the work done, wrote the dissertation, published the book, and then came back to India as a senior fellow because I was by then a regular PhD uh, in 1964. Now, I'm probably the oldest senior fellow still alive. I don't know. A couple of things are, are of interest about that first, that first grant. For one thing, they gave out in those years a very large dollar supplement, which is meant to cover ongoing expenses at home. Well, I had no ongoing expenses at home, so I put the, uh, the entire dollar amount into the down payment on a house. Uh, <laughs> And then while I was away, I had a graduate student, Ken Jones, live in it. So it worked, it worked, all, it worked very well. The other thing, of course, was that uh, the rupee allotment, which I did not get until I got to India, created something of a problem because I'd gotten involved with a young American female graduate student during the summer in Berkeley at a graduate Wisconsin student. And I mar proposed marriage, but I said, we're going to have to get married in Delhi. I have no cash to... Um, to keep us going. <laughs> and so she very strangely and enthused agreed. So we went, 
I went to Delhi and got the service set up and Barbara came along a little bit later. Um, and who did I meet when I got to Delhi? Pradeep Mahendarada. He was not in charge. He was just a guy who was working in, in what was a very tiny little bit of an office. I think it's, uh, he's always been in defense colony. And so he, he, he his, uh, apparently he helped set up the wedding and, uh, and got me uh, set up very easily and very nicely with a motor scooter. And I want to tell a story about how, how he did what he did for Barbara when she came back a couple of years later to do her dissertation research. She was doing a Muslim topic, obviously, and so he was, she was assigned to be affiliated with Aligarh Muslim University. But they never, they just sat on all papers. So Pradeep, as he told me one day, got on his motor, his own motor scooter, went up to Aligarh, took the papers with him, got them approved, brought them back and gave them into the industry. I mean, that is beyond the call of duty. And Pradeep was always, always so helpful. Uh, another thing that, uh, of course, surprised me and pleased me during that early period was that by now there were graduate students, American graduate students, partly because of the AIS. And uh, Frank Hutchins, Barbara Ramasek, a lot of people who became quite good friends. Uh, I invited them all to the wedding. I, I went up and down the, the archives. And, and, <laughs> uh, and so it was a, good, a great wedding and I got a lot of good friends out of it. And so that was the beginning of it. And the next few weeks after we were married, we sent out to do research uh, from my research, really. Barbara had no research at this point. She was just a beginning graduate student. We went to Allahabad, decided to work in the Uttar Pradesh State Records Office, the archives there. And uh, again, money was not a problem, to put it mildly. I, I, we, I think we rented a nice little bungalow in Allahabad for about 200 rupees a month. And the grant was something like 2,000 rupees a month. And, uh, we used some of the money to furnish the house we had just bought at Berkeley. Others, uh, other, other parts that we used to travel. It was very lonely in Alhabad. There were no other American graduate students of any sort there at that time. So we would just take the evening flight or the overnight train, 11 up, 12 down to Delhi to hang out with our friends for a couple of days. Republic Day, uh, Pradeep would set up tickets for all of us. So by keeping the Delhi connection and working in, in Allahabad, uh, we um, enjoyed ourselves pretty much. Well, I think you may have answered the next question, which was gonna be, um, what was it that drew you to AIS in the first place? Um, and clearly it became the only game in town. <laughs> well, technically they also, also had Fulbrights, of course. Yeah. Uh, and the, it, during the course of one's entire career, one would go back and forth from the Fulbright Hayes grant to the AIS grant. It depended on all kinds of things. Sometimes you got a, a family allowance. Other times you always, they were in rupees, of course. So we, we had to spend all the money before we could, before we came home. And I, we got some artwork and stuff like that as well. But, um, and there were occasions in 1969, 70, I think I, I had a Fulbright grant. Barbara had the AIS fellowship then. And so we played it back and forth as it went during the course of our career. And AIS uh, usually was the winner because, because in part Pradeep was such a wonderful, excellent contact and friend. And so um, there's nothing wrong with the Fulbright office, but they were a little bit more bureaucratic and sticky about things. So 
when if they're equally matched otherwise i would opt for the aiis grant though not i wouldn't try to get if you know if barbara was coming on one on that i'd go on uh, fulbright or something else it was just um uh another thing i liked about aiis all the time really was the situation in defense colony now that may seem a bit strange but it was a nice homey feeling to it b31 where we ended up after going to two or three other sites you know and uh, the um particularly when we come to into Delhi from Allahabad or someplace out of town, it was so nice just to be able to crash there or Pradeep would set up something at the Indian International Center. There are always fellow students and uh, fellows you didn't expect. I'd be sitting there, who would walk in, but Joe Elder, I had no idea he was in town. You know, it was that kind of a situation. I, uh, I feel a little bit unhappy that they've moved everything up to Gurgaon now. I mean, they still have the office in defense calling, I judge, but the hospital part is gone. So, um, uh, I think that's a sort of a loss. We, we might talk a little bit about that um, hostel arrangement because it was also really important for me, the sitting around at breakfast and dinner and being able to uh, compare notes and get to know people was really a quite special experience. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Now, of course, when Barbara and I were there together, we'd get a place of our own someplace else in 1981. We got an apartment out in Trinakibori, but we still come to meetings and see people all the time. And when I would go alone, which was what's happened certainly on numerous occasions right up to the end, then not knowing that I could crash there and that there would be a bed and that there would be people I knew and liked or would like to meet sometimes uh, was a very, um, very encouraging sign. It made it, made it and, I, and I think Defense Colony was just a nice place mm -hmm. to do that because it was close enough to town as you jump in a taxi and get there in 15 or 20 minutes, particularly once they got the railroad crossing fixed. But um, it was a, um, it was, it was, I think that was one of the highlights of, of the whole, of the whole thing. Um, another thing that was happened in this early period, uh, which was, uh, I'm not quite sure of the dates, but they used to have a resident senior fellow who was uh, the real, the real Pakasab of the operation. And he would, you know, Mandarata's boss, if you will, in a way, because at Pune, they found that nobody was going to Pune, and so it was pointless to have the uh, base of the organization there. That was a Sanskritist fantasy from the early years. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, but the senior research fellow didn't serve much purpose. I remember once, I think it was Morris Morris, uh, didn't even, he, he didn't even show up. He, he was booked into the Maidens Hotel on the far opposite side of Delhi. <laughs> and then the, the government of India, apparently, and I, this is what you said, in, or Ralph Nicholas had said in his interview, they, they cut out that post anyway, uh, which worked, I think, to our advantage because the senior resident fellow didn't do anything for much of anybody, but Pradeep did. And so when Pradeep was made the senior director, he always had contacts. I don't know how he got all these contacts, but once he was made senior director, I think I must have improved his morale and uh, given him some lever somewhat leverage in the uh, in the um, in ministries around because that was um, what they did. I think, in fact, you worked very hard on those connections. <laughs> um, it's been a, a large part of what he saw as part of his job. From my perspective, of course, um, since you and I go back a long ways. Uh, and um, I began life as your graduate student. Uh, it seems to me that there's also... Uh, 
spin it down. You came about 1970, 71, 72, something like that. A little bit later, but yeah, right. Yeah, yeah in that period. So I, I had become a senior professor uh, and Barbara had just finished her, her dissertation and the new joined and, and David Gilmartin too at the same time, I think. Or maybe David uh, was. But what I was gonna say is that there's also this very long pattern of your graduate students being involved with AIS. And that's worth noting, I think. Since yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a count, but almost every graduate student I ever had who wanted to work in the India field uh, was able to get an AISIS grant and go to India. There were a couple of exceptions, uh, Greg Stark and others in the mid 70s. And you yourself were a little bit of trouble because you were doing something that was communal, so to speak. So there were occasional periods, but very few when, when not because of the qualifications of the applicant, but because of the larger political scene, uh, there might be some denials. Um, and uh, I should tell an episode, I don't think any of these folks are still around. During the 1970s, I was uh, a Berkeley trustee to the board of the, of the AIS. And um, the, the institute was run partly from Philadelphia and partly from Chicago by the by Demick and initially, of course, by W. Norman Brown. And those of us in the Western campuses and with also Seattle, UCLA, felt that we were not consulted or not really. It was so we formed a kind of dissident group. And our dissident group in the early 1970s had a real point to it because. In those years, around the time of the Bangladesh War, the US government, Kissinger and all, were supporting Pakistan at some level. And so American, American entry of anybody, scholars, companies, anything was, was severely restricted. And our group felt that we should get rid of things like um, regional centers and the art and music society because they, they were targets. They, some unruly mob could come and, and, and tear them apart and even though even in Delhi, we didn't put the name on the door of the AIIS. Well, it turned out, uh, but they didn't accept our opinion that these parts of the institute should be dropped. Uh, we were felt aggrieved, but they were right because the, the institutes, the, uh, the Madras, the Calcutta ones certainly have always been very uh, useful. And I've stated in them myself and visited there. so. Uh, and similarly, the art and uh, music things, I think, have been given us some credibility with Indian intellectuals. So it wasn't the Indian politicians who are anxious to get it, but we got a base amongst Indian intellectuals and stuff who support the institution. And, you know, these, these trustee meetings were sort of fun. Of course, it was nice. There's a smaller number of them back in the 70s. And I remember the time I came back uh, just in time to get to the uh, trustee meeting. And I think March of 1977, bringing with me half a dozen Indian newspapers, literally off the press as I got on the plane, giving the account of uh, the defeat of Indira and in the 1977 election and who had won in the various constituencies. And trustees all grabbed the papers as soon as I showed up. So I thought the trustees in those days at least were also an, an attractive enterprise. Uh, as I say, one had to deal with its establishment, and sometimes that establishment included my best friends. But on the other hand, they worked hard, and I think in the most part, you know, uh, again, the late lamented Rick Asher, you know, various excellent people have been involved in the Chicago 
her orientation of, of the Institute. So a lot of my concerns earlier have, had disappeared. They were just for a period in the 70s. And students, either way, of course, didn't affect them, except in so far as I say, in this brief period of hostility towards Americans in India during the Bangladesh war period. Yeah, but it is interesting in that narrative, just um, how intrusive politics on either place can yeah. be. Not something we can escape even now. If we talk sort of an extension of that comment, um, during the last several decades, of course, the AIS has been very proactive in um, modifying the kind of mission and in introducing new programs. Um, what additional steps or emphases do you think AIS should consider taking? What, what are the kinds of challenges you see us facing? Well, um, there, are, there are the external challenges. Conceivably, also always the Modi government could crack down or Republicans could take over in, in, in the State Department in New York. Those kinds of external grants are all problems are always, I mean, this, this is the AIS, this, let's face it, a part of the liberal democratic establishment. And the question then within this country is, uh, they could stop funding us, that would, but I don't know, they still mostly use rupees, I think, although it's not quite the same as it used to be with the 480 business. Well, there um, are these endowments now, which help. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, I, I think the funding is not as precariously balanced as it was back in the 60s and 70s. So that was the only money they had. Uh, I mean, the dollar supplement soon disappeared. And so we had just the, uh, just the uh, rupee, uh, uh, just the, the rupee grant. But, uh, but what new things should we decide to do if we are given enough autonomy, let's say, to do it? Uh, that's hard for me to say, question to say. I mean, the Gurgaon headquarters, I always felt was a waste of money out in a remote suburb. But <laughs> <laughs> the center of the action, right? I mean, yes. you know, <laughs> it's no longer a remote suburb. So I have been proven wrong on many of the, my earlier objections. <laughs> and I, uh, so I, I can't have um, said that I was very much of a prophet. But in terms of programs or practices, I think it's still important that we be careful not to try to push aside Indian institutions. I mean, it's tricky because places like JNU and, uh, and are not providing really good first grade PhD programs anymore because they have politicized by the Modi government. Uh, and we're not a university, we can't offer degrees. And it is very delicate to what extent should we try to train postgraduate Indian students in India. Uh, to what extent can we offer them training in the US? We can't really do that either, of course, because that's not part of our objective mission. So, but I think the kinds of programs that I think you've been involved in and some other people, uh, you know, training programs, two week sort of programs and things of that sort, uh, I think might work, but it, it's politically always delicate and it's going to be delicate. Uh, so that's why I think we want to, we don't want to go around claiming that we're the replacement for JNU, although I would love to see oh, no. it happen. It can't happen. It's impossible. So I think that certain roads are blocked by the nature of the game. And we're going to represent the United States and uh, you not only live with, you try to advantage, make advantages out of it. I, I, 
Should we try to get more people in a wider variety of disciplines? Should we try to get scientists, for instance, uh, uh, or uh, uh, people who are in, into um, computer at work? I mean, uh, there are a lot of stuff going on in India in this kind of way, and it's conceivable that we could find at least a graduate student, a few graduate students interested in computer science who'd be willing to spend a year at the Tata Institute or someplace like that. Uh, as a, and that would provide us with uh, a new face, new faces, new new connections. So, so some kind a, of inter-institutional inter collaboration. Yeah. Well, you, as I say, you do a good job of that yourself. So, I mean, I, I have to say, you don't have to look any farther than in the screen to see how are the kinds of things that can be done. So, uh, you know, I mean, with the old-fashioned, I'd like to say, I don't want to see the old-fashioned stuff abandoned. I think PhD students in history or whatever uh, need support, and they should be encouraged to go to India. It provides us, and, it, and they provide us always when they come home, a base of support in American universities when they get jobs. Uh, so that, uh, and that provides leverage for hiring more professors, getting more students. And I think uh, particularly in the, all the talk about China, not to mention Ukraine. I mean, uh, India is sort of getting maybe a little bit pushed back in, in American consciousness. But the larger issues of getting people to learn and know about India, I think, are still remain. And that's going to be probably even more important. I used to think uh, that uh, China and India are going to engage in a competition for who's going to be the great power of the 21st century. The answer to that is now pretty clear. It's not India. So, yeah. uh, but still, the things that can be done and usefully accomplished by people going to India. And certainly, the um, growth in the number of member institutions yeah. is a measure of the kind of uh, distribution out um, for at least in the last phase. And it would be really interesting to see how that can be um, um, used as a plus for doing the kind of um, distribution that we would really like in new ways. Yeah, I mean, you also, you, there's also the question of, of junior college people and stuff like that who are not trying to do PhDs. I think the junior college are, are really incredibly important places to try to develop in a concern of India. It's not just PhDs, that, that old core must remain, but there are things in training of computer scientists or training of junior college people who can learn something about certain something about India, which then they can take back to their classes. Now, I think that the constituencies can be can be somewhat enlarged uh, in that respect. And so- Yes, Pranima and uh, the International Learning Committee have been talking about um, really conceptualizing a pipeline and that if you want people to be interested and engaged with India, you have to get them there. And yeah. that, that ought to start with the community colleges. That's the, I mean, uh, people with PhDs know what they're getting into with and they, that That's a matter of getting the money for them. But some of the community colleges, you have to deal with this, why should I care about India? What's the point? And what do I, it's, it's all, you know, I don't think the old, fears about disease and or the old uh, sort of enthusiasms for uh, the gurus are quite the same either way i'm happy to be rid of that but still you want people to care about and, and realize that india is a matter of is an important place and, and and one of the really interesting things that's happened through the two cohorts so far and we're going to be working on the third this year 
of taking community college faculty to yeah. in, is that when they create curricula, they don't do standalone courses on India. They do yeah, no. like environmental issues and they have the students look at their localities and then compare that to what they learned uh, when they were there as faculty in India. Mm, so it's yeah. a different way of um, enlarging perceptions. Of you slide India in, as it were, as, a, as a part of a larger program. Uh, you, I mean, I mean, uh, there may be some junior college courses on India, but there are all kinds of them on uh, other kinds of, of That's subjects. Right. And it's, um, I think, um, and I'm very pleased that you're trying to develop some of this. I mean, you're a pucky historian of the old sort, but you're also very imaginative and engaged in doing uh, new kinds of things. And uh, for an old timer like me, I think that's really great. Well, that would be the perfect note to end on. <laughs> Anyway, yes, I hope that uh, I'm not sure who is meant to be the audience for these videos, but I think it's pe good that people coming up now have some sense of what the history of this enterprise is and, and how, how it used to work. I mean, people say, wow, they have these huge rupee, huge rupee grants, I might say, that soon ceased to be so huge. When we, when, when we went to India with, with our wife and, and kids, two kids, in 1981 and rented a house in New Delhi. There was no money left over. I didn't buy any artworks or furniture. I bought maybe postage stamps. <laughs> it was a, it's a, that's not get carried away by thoughts of money. That, that I think is long gone. So. Well, I think if you decide to be an academic, you're not carried away by money anyway. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Tom, thank you. This was great. This was really a nice insight. Well, and thank you for taking on the chores. And uh, we're seeing somebody in a few days. We'll tell her how much I've enjoyed. Well, that's our time for today. A grateful thank you to Sandria Freitag, Associate Teaching Professor in the Department of History at NC State University and leader of the KORC AWS Faculty Development Seminars, and Thomas Metcalf, Emeritus Professor of History and Sarah Kailath Professor of Indian Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. And thank you for listening. For more information on all of the American Institute of Indian Studies programs and fellowships, visit www.indiastudies.org. Mm -hmm.